There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mark Zuckerberg staked a big bet when he changed the name of the company he leads from Facebook to Meta. What's clear is that people are leaving Facebook. What's not is whether enough will show up in the metaverse he's banking on. And England has extended its trial of electric scooters to see how they fit into the transportation mix. We ask whether it's got more people out of their cars and just how green e-scooters really are. And of course, we took a couple of them for a spin. First up, though. Join me here. Won't you be seated, please, ladies and gentlemen? America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. In June 1971, President Richard Nixon started a war that's still going on. In the intervening years, the war on drugs has proved as deadly as many more traditional conflicts. An elite Colombian police unit killed Pablo Escobar in a shootout, cornering him here in this house where he had been hiding in the city of Medellin. And despite billions of dollars spent, the war hasn't been won. The UN says the global production of cocaine hit a record high in 2020. The relentless growth of the drug trade and half a century of policy failures are making some leaders consider a radical change of approach. Latin American presidents have often said that the war on drugs isn't working, but they've tended to do so when they've left office. Emma Hogan is The Economist's America's editor. What's striking now is that two presidents, Pedro Castillo in Peru and Gustavo Petro in Colombia, are now speaking out saying that the current status quo isn't working and that they want to do things differently. Why is that, though? What's changed? Two things have changed. The first is that Colombia elected its first left-wing president. And so Gustavo Petro has spoken for years now that he thinks the war on drugs isn't working and that the current status quo, which was the Colombian government, often with the support of America's government, implemented forced eradication programs, either spraying coca crops from the air with chemicals or sending the military out to forcibly yank it up by hand. So... That's the biggest change. The second change, though, is that despite the fact there have been years of eradication programs, coca is still booming, and America remains the biggest consumer of cocaine, with approximately 2% of the population having used it in 2020. And I know you had the chance to talk about that with Colombia's president recently. I met Gustavo Petro in New York 
He was there for the United Nations General Assembly. We met in the UN residence for Colombia. He was relaxed. I'd, I'd met him before in May when he was a candidate for the election in Bogota. So this was our second interview. Mr. Petro is an unusual politician. In his youth, he was a member of the guerrilla group M19. So although he has been a professional politician for much of his life, he's very open about the fact that he's the first M19 politician in Colombia. And he has perhaps a slightly more casual style than you'd have for other heads of states. He's very willing to talk to journalists at length. He was very easygoing and and spoke to us in, in Spanish, uh, he, you know, as he doesn't speak English. And what did he say about how he sees the problem? So, at the UN, Gustavo Petro was very clear that the war on drugs isn't working, a new approach is needed. When I sat down with him, he outlined what he actually really wanted to do. Pero sí percibo que hay una brecha que Colombia podría aprovechar para sacar el país de las rutas. Eso no significa que se acabe el mercado ilegal de la cocaína o lo que ya existe en toda América. Eso solo significa que One of those policy prescriptions is that he wants to negotiate with gangs and offer them a form of leniency if they decide to dismantle. He's also spoken out publicly about how he doesn't want to extradite gangs who cooperate with the government. And he said to me that, you know, in the month and a half that he's been in government, he's already received offers from criminal organizations, some of which you know, go back to the Cold War, to begin some sort of negotiation. And he spoke about decriminalizing cocoa leaf production and creating places where Colombians could consume cocaine in a supervised environment. In eh, Colombia, we can give steps, like other countries in the world, to what we call the consumer His plans are still quite nascent at the moment, and there would be a lot of international pushback to anything bolder than that. But even these steps are very large. So how does that change the, the scene then as regards the war on drugs? Why is what Mr. Petro is suggesting the solution? Mr. Petro is actually fairly limited in what he can do. When he talks about decriminalizing coca leaf production, he's gesturing to what has actually happened in Peru and Bolivia, where coca leaf production has been legalized. In each country, there's 22,000 hectares of legal coca leaf production. But this is not for cocaine. This is for coca leaf chewing, for coca tea, and increasingly coca liquor. This is a way to prevent poor cocoa farmers from being attacked by the military and police, but it would not undermine illegal gangs' profits. And indeed, in Peru and Bolivia, there's lots of illegal coca that is still produced, and they are still the second and third biggest producers of coca and such cocaine in the world. So is it so big a deal then that Mr. Petro is is thinking about implementing these things if it really doesn't hit the, the illegal gangs, you know, where, where they live, and, and in any case tackles coca consumption in the place where the cocaine consumption isn't happening? 
There are two reasons why it's a big deal. The, the first is that up till recently, Colombia has been the biggest ally to the United States in Latin America. It's worked very closely with the US on security policies and also with cocoa eradication policies, which did cause a precipitous drop in the amount of cocoa that was produced in the early 2000s before bouncing back. The second reason is that there are people around Mr. Petro who have spoken about far more liberal policies. So Philippe Tascon, who was a member of his campaign team and had been a tip to be his drug czar, has spoken about legalizing cocaine. Similarly, Ivan Muralanda, a liberal Colombian senator, introduced a bill in 2020 in Colombia which proposed that the government bought up all the coca produced in the country at market prices and that Colombians would be allowed to consume cocaine if they'd passed a medical exam. So although Mr. Petro at the moment is presenting quite a conservative set of policies, there are others around him who are promoting far more liberal ideas. So let's talk through how that might actually look. How would legalization work? We can only talk hypothetically about what legalization would look like in Latin America. But Jonathan Calkins, a drug expert at Carnegie Mellon University, wrote a paper in 2016 which tried to look at what the possible outcomes would be for either a producing country, such as Colombia, or a transshipment country, such as Honduras. His conclusion was that without countries in order to ship cocaine to, these places would essentially become pariah states, that America and other countries would slap sanctions on them. And so fundamentally, Latin America is somewhat hamstrung in what it can do. It's up to the consuming countries to legalize this drug. In that if you just decriminalize it, for example, that means that consumers can take it, but that it's still illegal to make. You just create a larger market for illegal gangs. But if in this very radical hypothetical scenario, the United States, for example, legalized cocaine, then you would immediately knock the profit margins of drug gangs. It's estimated that a kilo of cocaine in Colombia costs between $8,000 and $12,000. It's about $20,000 in the United States, $35,000 in Europe, $50,000 in China, and $100,000 for that kilo in Australia. So the moment that you create a legal market, those profit margins would drop. Gangs have diversified into uh, human trafficking, illegal gold mining, and into synthetic drugs such as fentanyl. But because they can still get such profits out of cocaine, it still makes up a significant proportion of their revenues. So hold on, the outcome of all of this is the suggestion that America's way to win the war on drugs is to stop fighting the war on drugs, at least as regards cocaine. Well, it's clear that Mr. Petro is limited in what he can do. Even the president of Colombia has said the problem is in consumption, not in production. So it's clear that in order to really stamp down on the profit margins of gangs, this drug would have to be legal in the country which consumes it the most, which is the United States. And right now, that is quite a radical idea, even for Mr. Biden's administration. But attitudes in America are changing. Mr. Biden pardoned the 6,000 or so Americans who have a conviction for possession of marijuana. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. 
This is a small step, one that's sorely needed. But it's clear that his administration is aware that the current prohibitionist model isn't working and that more needs to be done to boost harm reduction policies. And for what it's worth, politicians elsewhere are also speaking out that status quo is not working. So although these seem like radical ideas right now, they are gaining momentum. Emma, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's almost a year since Facebook decided to rebrand itself as Meta a nod to Mark Zuckerberg's ambition to make it big in the metaverse, a whole new world of virtual reality. The firm's boss calls it, A future where you can be present together with the people you care about. He has not had a good year since then. The biggest problem is that for the first time in its history, the number of people being present together on that core Facebook service has fallen. But another problem looms now that Mr. Zuckerberg has put all those eggs in the metaverse basket. It's not really ready for prime time. Being present together so far means, well, just with virtual upper bodies. There's one more feature coming soon that's probably the most requested feature on our roadmap. Legs. The metaverse is not a tangible thing, let alone a profit-making one. And with Facebook's numbers sliding, investors are starting to wonder if the metaverse itself has legs. Nearly a year ago that the company changed its name. And if you look at the share performance since then, the price has dropped by about 60%, which is just astonishing. You know, when you consider what a valuable company Meta is, and particularly what it used to be, it's lost more than half a trillion dollars of market value. Tom Wainwright is our technology and media editor. And I I mean, there's various different problems going on. The big sell-off in Meta stock began in February, and that was after the company had just reported the first ever drop in daily average users for Facebook, which was its first and biggest social network. And that was the first time, you know, in 18 years of uninterrupted growth that it had any kind of loss of users. And since then, it's worth saying it's put those users back on, and then some. It was only a very small drop. But the fact that it had lost any users at all kind of spooked people because this had never happened before. And there's more worries as well about the kind of makeup of who these users are. The overall numbers of Facebook users are ticking back up again, which looks healthy. But if you kind of drill down a bit, then, you know, there's some evidence that young people in rich countries, particularly in the US, are kind of going off Facebook. Lots of us have heard this anecdotally, and there was a whistleblower last year from Facebook who released some documents suggesting that among under 18s, Facebook was massively out of fashion. And in the long run, that's got to be a worry for the company because if young people aren't signing up today in rich countries, then it means that the user pipeline, if you like, is is not going to be as healthy going forward. And they're very worried that a lot of these people are signing up instead to apps like TikTok or Be Real or any of these new apps which are successfully capturing the attention of of young people in, in wealthy countries. 
And that being the principal metric for success in this sector is just growth and in particular among the young. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about how many people are using your platform. Trouble is, it's not just that for Meta at the moment. It's partly that there are these questions about user numbers. But at the same time, there are other issues going on in the advertising business, which, of course, is how it makes nearly all its money. And the issue there is that Apple have recently made some changes, which basically serve to make it much harder to track what users are doing online. And that causes two problems for an ad-based company like Meta. I mean, one is that it makes it harder for them to serve you relevant ads. So, you know, if they can't see what you do, what you like, it's hard for them to know what kind of ad to show you. And the related problem is that it's also harder for them to track whether the ads are successful. So it used to be that it was fairly easy for them to see if you click on an ad, you know, do you then buy the product in question? It's a bit harder for them to do that now. So that has also challenged them. And Meta said earlier this year that Apple's changes alone were going to cost it about $10 billion this year in foregone revenue from advertising. But Facebook got as far as it did, Meta has got as far as it has by innovating, right? Uh, Either copying or buying up rivals and engineering around the problems it finds. Well, what's it doing about all this? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, they've got form on this and and they're very good at adapting to the latest big thing, whether that was, you know, the, the stories idea, which they originally got from Snapchat or sometimes just by acquiring rivals like Instagram. And at the moment, we see that they're responding to the TikTok threat by launching what is effectively a TikTok clone, which they call Reels, which is a, you know, a short video app, which looks very, very much like TikTok. And Reels is doing pretty well. You know, it said earlier this year that it was already accounting for more than a fifth of the time that people spend on Instagram. And they claim that it's monetizing pretty quickly relative to other features that they've done in the past. And at the same time, they're trying to rebuild their advertising model. And so they're doing things like investing pretty heavily in artificial intelligence as another way of trying to figure out what kind of ads consumers will like, basically. But for Mr. Zuckerberg, this is more than just survival. He thinks the big growth area is in the metaverse. How's that looking? Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, he's plowing tons of money into this thing. The Reality Labs, which is Meta's kind of metaverse division, has notched up losses of more than $27 billion so far pursuing this metaverse idea. Imagine you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually. It has things that are only possible virtually. And it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. And they've developed a VR headset, which they call the Quest 2. They just the other day announced a a new, more high-tech headset called the Quest Pro. And they've just poured resources into this. But it's still not really clear quite what the metaverse is going to be and when it's going to really take off and, you know, if it will take off, let alone when it's going to make any serious money. The thing that Mark Zuckerberg seems most sort of excited about and, and the area where meta in theory ought to have the biggest advantage is in sort of social networking in VR, you know, social uses of this technology. And that's the area where nobody really seems interested. And I've been playing around a bit in Horizon Worlds, which is meta's main metaverse app. And in a way, the tech's quite impressive. It feels quite immersive, but it's just, it's not clear yet that there are very, very many people who really want to spend serious time socializing in VR. All right, Soapstone, how are we doing tonight? I went to a virtual reality comedy club and it was kind of arguably sort of unintentionally funny. Austin Joey's in the house. Zach, the artist, is here. But, you know, Um, it wasn't sort of um, a place where I'd want to spend hours and hours of time. 
this could very, very well change. But I, I think investors are, are getting a bit impatient. You know, they're seeing getting on for $30 billion sunk into this thing, not very much evidence so far of widespread uptake. I mean, the, the latest leaked report suggests that fewer than 200,000 people are using Horizon World regularly. I mean, compare that with Facebook, for example, which has about 2 billion users. You know, it's, it's just a totally, totally different scale. And I think there's a question of whether or not Meta can scale this up and make this popular before investors lose patience, really. You say it's not clear when the metaverse will take off, if it will take off. That's kind of an existential if for Meta now, isn't it? Is there is there a chance the metaverse was the wrong horse to back here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's possible. We just don't know. You know, it's a huge, huge risk. And I think people who follow metaverse and VR and AR, augmented reality, closely, you know, the the most bullish people see all this as being potentially the next big platform to follow the smartphone. In the most kind of maximalist scenario, it could be that within a decade, we're all wearing headsets and, and using them for kind of everything in the way that we currently use our phones for almost everything. And if that comes to pass, then meta could be very well positioned. They've got a big first mover advantage. They've hired a lot of the top people in this space. It could prove to be a real masterstroke. But there is, you know, two risks, I think. One is that the metaverse and VR and AR just never quite take off in that way. And they remain a kind of moderately successful niche for things like gaming and maybe some training and, and that kind of thing, but no more. That's one risk. And the other risk is that it does eventually take off, but it takes a lot longer than people expect. If that doesn't happen for, say, 15 years rather than five years, then it could be that the company that is sinking tens of billions of dollars into this thing now might not be the one to really take advantage in future. You know, it could be that somebody else jumps on this opportunity at a later date when it's at an easier stage to exploit. That's the risk for Mark Zuckerberg and Meta. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I am on an electric scooter on the Mall, heading towards Buckingham Palace, dodging traffic, and I'm with Georgia Banjo, our Britain correspondent, and trying to stay upright. Oh, red light, red light. How are you finding it? Um, well, once I got going, better. Do I have to follow the light? Yes. I would also indicate with your arm. I need both hands. <laughs> How am I supposed to indicate? Most people hate us. People hate scooters. Oh, yes. No, no, I've, I've been busily hating scooter riders for months. This is quite a turning okay, of the table. Okay, let's go. On you go. I'm quite scared about turning. Woo! You're not indicating. Alert, <laughs> alert. Turning. We've taken a turn. We're about to zoom past Downing Street on our left. Shall we wave to the embattled Prime Minister? I think we might have been lucky not to get in any scrapes so far. Perhaps we should take this to a a safer studio environment. I think that sounds like a good idea, Jason. So, Georgia, now we're back in a decidedly safer studio. Um, Tell me what is prompting all of this interest in electric scooters. So basically, we need to start making our cities greener. We need to get more people out of their cars. And we've also just emerged from a pandemic where public transport options were really restricted. One way of travelling which fulfills both of these criteria are e-scooters. And 
The government over the past two years has been trying out a scheme to see how well they might work on England's roads. But why a need for a public scheme, though? You could just buy these things on the internet. Why why not just let that happen? Right now, it's illegal to ride your private scooter on a public road. You can do it totally fine on private land, in your own back garden, but you're not allowed to ride them on the roads. And in London and other towns and cities which are involved in this trial, what they are trying to do is to see how effective e-scooters could be as another form of transport. So this involves having these e-scooter rental schemes where basically you can turn up like we did, you can check out a scooter and then you have to ride it like you would any other kind of motor vehicle. And going into this, what do we know about how Brits feel about having these things on their roads? A lot of people hate scooters, so that's the blunt truth of it, especially if you don't ride one yourself. So in Portsmouth, which is one of the cities involved in the trial, around two-thirds of people who don't use them say that they want them banned. Police are saying that drug dealers are increasingly using e-scooters to zip away from the police. And there's some worries from charities and people who support blind people that they won't be able to hear these e-scooters coming. And we hear stories about increasing numbers of collisions. So in 2021, the number of collisions involving e-scooters tripled. Ten e-scooter riders were killed. Well, if those are the the, the risks, what, what are the benefits? So as of yet, we don't have any official statistics from the trial. Hopefully the government's going to release a report soon. That's been delayed for a number of months. But there are some indications that despite the concerns about safety, that e-scooters might be safer than other alternatives. So there was one paper I looked at which suggested that e-scooters were five times less, less likely to be involved in a crash than a bicycle and nine times less likely than a motorbike. We know, of course, that cars are pretty dangerous things to be out and about in. Five people die every day in a car accident or in some sort of car collision. And we also know that with e-scooters, if you have the right sort of infrastructures, if you have proper cycle lanes that people can ride in, if you have a more general awareness that people might be using e-scooters, then these things do make those sorts of rides a lot safer. And so what's your take on on all of this in terms of fitting the bill uh, in, in terms of greenery? Clearly, e-scooters are, are better as, as an option than cars. One issue with e-scooters is that they generally have quite short life cycles. So it takes quite a lot of energy to produce e-scooters, which means that when they're compared against some other forms of transport, for example, the metro or the underground, an e-scooter journey can actually work out emitting more than these other forms of transport. But that's where the kind of local trial data gets interesting because in Portsmouth, which has released data on this, we're seeing that actually a significant amount of the users are swapping out driving a car for an e-scooter and that very few people surveyed are actually walking less or cycling less than they were before. The other thing about the trial is that so far, local authorities seem very keen very happy with how they're going. They seem to want to keep them. The big outcome of these trials would be if private e-scooters are legalised to be ridden on public roads. And that could happen through a future of transport bill, 
which is due to be discussed early next year. So you've been looking into these things. We, we've even gone for a ride here. What's your verdict? Should should these things stick around? Is this the future? So personally, I'm not a big fan of e-scooters. I do find them a bit terrifying. But with my unbiased journalistic hat on, I would say that, yes, they should stay. They're better for the environment than cars. They're a good way to get around if you're in a bit of a rush. Ultimately, however you feel about them, we should all want more of them on our streets. So, Jason, do you think you'll be using a scooter to get to work? I don't know, but now I'm on one and relatively confident. I might take it home. Sounds like a plan. Let's go then. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.